All right, so we are now fully engulfed in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Starts in chapter 24. We're going to be picking up with verse 3 today. Uh, I'm going to read through verse 14. We may or may not get all the way to verse 14. And we're probably going to start somewhere in between verse 3 and verse 14 next week. Um, But I, I asked everybody last week, if you would read ahead, so who read the passage for this week before this morning? Uh-huh. Okay, that's about what I thought. All right, so need to work on that obedience thing just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you're supposed to do it out of love because you love me, right? No, because you love God's word. So anyways, uh, you'll get an opportunity this week to read it again because I'm going to have you guys read it while we're preaching through it. Um, This particular passage um, contains at at least what we're going to see this morning. There are some things that Jesus says that we need to pay attention to. And more importantly, there are some things that Jesus doesn't say that we need to pay attention to. Because there have been a lot of things read into this passage that are not necessarily here. So I'm going to invite you to stand for our passage this morning, starting in chapter 24 with verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of you coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains." Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, help us to take your word this morning and to understand it correctly. Help us to be changed by what we read. Help us to understand the necessity of sharing the gospel with people in the world that we live in today. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So this morning, there's going to be a lot of setting the stage, a lot of setting the picture of what's going on here. So Jesus has gotten done with his teaching in the temple courtyard. He's pronounced the curses on the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and he leaves the temple and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a Sabbath day journey from the temple. Anybody know what that means? Actually, it's not a mile. It's 2,000 cubits, or 0.57 
Okay, so just a little over half a mile. That's the maximum a person could travel on the Sabbath, was that 2,000 cubits. Um, most of that was down the Temple Mount and then back up the Mount of Olives. It was probably much less than a half a mile straight line, but unless you could jump really far, you, you had to travel down and back up to get to the Mount of Olives. Um, the Mount of Olives, also known as Olivet, was part of a mountainous ridge just to the east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Um, on the east side of the mountains, you enter desert. The area between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley there, was a very fertile location. There were a lot of uh, gardens, there were a lot of things going on there, and of course the Mount of Olives was called that because they grew olive trees there, which would be absolutely torturous for Steph to visit as she is allergic to olive trees. But in the valley, the Kidron Valley, at the foot of the church, uh, yeah, at the foot of the church, at the foot of the mountain, there was a garden. And in that garden, at some point in the history of the the location, there was, at least according to legend, they don't know this for sure, there was an olive press located in this garden. The Hebrew word for olive press or oil press was what you see up there at the top. Got Shmanin. Okay? And then when Alexander the Great conquered Palestine, it was translated into Greek or transliterated into Greek. Um, y'all can read that in the bottom line. Right? Uh, let me. I'll give you the letters. Okay? So starting on the left, that upside down L, that's gamma. The next letter is epsilon. Then you have the, the O with the line across the middle. That's theta. Then you have sigma and eta, mu, alpha, nu, eta. And that's that word right there. Okay? Now, why is this important? So... If you assign English sounds to the Greek letters, you wind up with Gethsemane. The garden in which Jesus prayed before his trial and execution was the garden at Gethsemane. It's the garden at the oil press. It was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So there's a lot of stuff that takes place here in this location. Now, Somewhere uphill from the garden, Jesus sits down and starts having this private discussion with his disciples. We're told that they come to him privately. And if you look at their question, you can tell they are very, very concerned. He had told the scribes and the Pharisees that they would receive the fullness of the curse because of their part 
in persecuting and killing the people that God sent to Israel. And he said that that curse would be visited upon them within the generation, within 40 years, within that that time frame, the life of the people who were there listening to him declare this curse. This would happen. And then they're walking out of the temple complex and they're making their way down the mountain at the, at the end of, uh, uh, sorry, at the very beginning of chapter 23, or 24 rather. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're making their way down the path from the temple. You can see this massive structure, Herod the Great's temple, that he had just, it was gilded, it was covered with gold and There was gold in between the stones that were put together for the walls. It was gorgeous. And the disciples said, look, isn't it it grand? And Jesus said, I tell you that the time is coming when there ain't going to be one stone left sitting on top of another. Now, these guys have spent three years with Jesus. From the the start when he was... uh, being baptized in the Jordan River, and John declared that he was the Lamb of God, right? And then when he goes to Galilee and he calls the rest of the disciples and they travel and they hear the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about how the the scribes and the Pharisees have really missed the boat with their teaching. And then he heals people and there's miracles happening and, and then there's those questions of his identity at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And they respond with, we say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? That's Peter's great confession of faith. They know who Jesus is. They know that he is, at the very least, a man sent from God with a message for the people of Israel. And at the most, he is the promised Messiah who has come to deliver the people. And now, in the last, let's say, hour and a half, he has proclaimed that God is going to visit a curse on the teachers in the temple and that there's coming a time when there's not going to be one stone left on another in the temple. Why do you think their minds were troubled? Right? Do you know something that we don't know? Obviously, mentally, the only thing that is missing is Jesus holding up a big sign that says the end is near. Right? So they come to him and they ask this question, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Boy, that's an easy question to answer, isn't it? No. No, it's not. And Jesus, well, before we get to Jesus' answer, the first thing we have to tackle is, what are they asking? Because this is a multi-part question. If, if you look at it in the English, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So it's at least two parts of a question. What, when is this going to happen? That's question number one. Question number two is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When and what do we need to look for? That's what they're asking. They understand it will be within 
the generation. Jesus just said that. But they want to narrow the time frame down just a little bit further. Now, there's a lot of reasons why they might want to know when the day is coming. So that's the first thing that we're going to look at here. Um, it's what Jesus responds with when, he, when they ask the question, when will these things happen? That is their first concern. This is a question that has been on the minds of believers in the church since there was a church. Right? We want to know. If you don't believe me that we want to know when the end is coming, then just go hit Barnes & Noble. It doesn't even have to be a Christian bookstore. Hit Barnes & Noble and hit Lifeway. And go wander around and look at the religion and spirituality sections in Barnes and & Noble and, and look at just about, oh, half of the stuff on the shelves at Lifeway. It deals with end times prophecy. We want to know when the curtain's going to drop. And... Just like the disciples, there's a lot of different reasons why we would want to know that information. For one, if we've been believers for a while, and we've grown in our faith, and we've, we've been obedient, and we've shared the gospel with people, and, and we've lived a consistent life, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we've, we've done what we're supposed to do, right? And you look at the world around us, right? What do you see? There's hatred, there's division, there's strife, there's, there's destruction, there's death, there's pain, there's disease. I don't know how many times I flip through Facebook, and, and I'm, I'm really not a fan of chain letters or, or, you know, please post this in honor of Blah, 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 blah. If any of you are friends with me on Facebook and you post that kind of stuff, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying I'm not a fan of those things. Every day, within the top 15 or 20 posts that I see, every day is somebody posting something about cancer. And it's either one of these, please post this in memory of, or it is an announcement from somebody on one of the groups that I'm a part of that, hey, my mom, dad, grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, sister, brother, cousin, wife, daughter, son, whatever, has just been diagnosed with, right? And quite frankly, we're tired of seeing it. I hate it. I hate logging into the news and seeing what's going on around the world. I hate logging in. And it, I, could, I could log into WLOX. It doesn't get any better. We come up here on Wednesday nights and we talk about it just about every week. For a while there, it was like an entire two-month section where every Wednesday we would come up here, one of the prayer requests was, well, there was somebody shot today. And I'm not talking about in Jackson. I'm talking about Gulfport or Biloxi or Woolmarket. And really, who gets shot in Woolmarket? A pharmacist. Right? We're tired of it. And so the disciples may have been asking the question, and we might ask the question because we're just done. How much more do we have to watch? Some 
may want to know because they have friends or family who have rejected the gospel because they're not ready, my favorite word, yet. I'm just not ready yet. Really? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've still got sinning I want to do. I'm not ready yet. How stupid does that sound? When you hear it out loud, it just, really? I've still got sinning I want to do, so I'm not ready to accept Jesus yet. Already. But see, if I could tell that person, that friend or that family member, if I could tell them, look, Jesus said he's coming on the second Thursday of the month in July of 2025. You've got until then. Then it might give them the pressure to go ahead and accept him. Right. Or perhaps it might be that I know Jesus said go and make disciples, but he's not coming back for another two years. So I'm going to hold off. And then I'll get a couple in right before the wire. I think that's probably the most likely. Right? Because we use it to egg ourselves on. Because look, I've been a college student long enough and a graduate student long enough that I know that we are deadline-driven people, right? I would, I, <laughs> I said this the other day, and I about made somebody spit their coffee out. I would have a master's degree in procrastination, but I put the last test off. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, all right? That's how we operate. We do stuff when it has to be done. We wait for it. Those people that are aberrations and self-starters and do things without a deadline, I don't understand that. All right. And you know, it might be that we're just tired. And we're afraid of death. More accurately, I, I think it'd be accurate to say we're afraid of dying. Right? Death doesn't scare me. Dying is a different thing altogether. Right? Because generally speaking, dying unless it's one of those situations where you, you just, you, you know, you an aneurysm in your sleep or, or, or whatever, generally speaking, death comes with pain. And I'm not a big fan. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not, don't sign me up for it. That's why I don't have anything pierced. That's why I don't have any tattoos. Right? Took, took me a long time to get to the point where I'd go to the clinic and get my shots on time. I don't like pain. And so if we're not looking forward to the process of seeing Jesus because of our death, we may want to know, okay, Jesus says he's coming back. i got to make it that far. There's a lot of different reasons we want to know. And so Jesus, in his normal fashion, gives them the best answer to that part of the question. He skips it entirely. <laughs> He doesn't answer the question. Contrary to John Hagee and all the rest of the people who have made so much money publishing books declaring that the end is coming 
there. The guys who made their internet fame, uh, Harold Camping, uh, was one recently where I think he was on like his third round of forecasting when the end was going to happen, when Jesus was coming back. Um, Jesus doesn't give an answer. Why? Huh? Okay. He didn't get, why didn't God let him, why didn't God let him give us an answer? Because there is a 100% chance we would use the information to sin. <laughs> it's not a 50-50. It's not a 99-1. It is a 100% chance that we would use the information to sin. Oh, Jesus isn't coming back till 2034. That means I can do whatever I want right now. <coughs> I'll have time. I don't need to worry about witnessing to that guy. I've got 16 years yet. So instead of answering that, he goes on to the second part of the question. But he starts with a caution. And I think that caution in part addresses the question of when. Because he says, make sure nobody leads you astray. I think that's important because of the audience that Jesus is talking to. Now, broad spectrum, that word disciple is anybody who is following Jesus. And we know that there were a lot of people who followed Jesus, right? And we can narrow it down to those people who really followed Jesus, the ones who stuck around and listened to him and did what he said. But typically in Scripture, when we read the word disciples, what we're talking about is the 12. The 12 that have been with him for three years. The 12 that have followed him the closest. The 12 that he knows the best. And Jesus says, make sure nobody leads you astray. That's how serious this is. That's how serious it is that we can get tied up on the wrong question. When is this going to happen? And we lose sight of the stuff that we're supposed to be doing in the, mid, in the meantime. Those 12 are going to be the 12 who have the strongest desire to see Jesus coming back. Those 12 are the 12 who are going to miss him the most. So if somebody were to show up a year after Jesus ascended into heaven and say, I am the Christ, those 12 are going to be the 12 who are going to pay the most heed to what he has to say. And that could cause problems for the church. Now remember, the second question here, all right, when will these things happen? When will these things be? That's the first part. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see how those two things are tied together? Right? The disciples were expecting that Jesus' return would mark the end of the age. There's actually some teaching in the uh, the camp of the Pharisees that really broke the, the history of Israel up into these different ages, almost a, a Jewish dispensational kind of sort of thing. 
And the advent of the Christ, the appearance of the Christ, marked the end of the age in that school of thought. So they're asking what they need to look for, that this is coming. And boy, does he give them a laundry list. First, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead people astray. Second, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is just the onset of labor. I spent some time kind of chewing on this. I told you all last week that I've not studied eschatology to the degree that I feel comfortable preaching eschatology. So I'm kind of approaching this very carefully, sticking my toes in the water just a little bit at a time. So I thought very, very, very much about this when I was uh, putting together my, my notes. And I can probably say that I can consciously think back through my life, and I can make it to about 35 years ago. Okay? That puts me somewhere in the neighborhood of nine years old. Can't remember a whole lot from before that. There's some memories, but just that those archives are too far gone. And in the course of the last 35 years, I have heard people say that Jesus is coming back in almost every one of those 35 years. I can remember, I can consciously remember people saying that Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump are irrefutably the Antichrist. All of them. I've also heard that attributed to Bill Gates, which I'm very likely to believe as a computer guy. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Vladimir Putin, Gorbachev, Stephen Hawking. Keep going. Christian ministers, and I I do put that in quotes because there are some that I'm not entirely sure really, really fit the description, have been writing and publishing books on when the end times are coming, for as far back as I can remember. At least into the mid-70s, there was this this huge percolation to the top of the end is near, at least that far. Late great planet Earth, the blood moons. Remember the blood moons? John Hagee and his, his... These four blood moons show that the... No, what they show is that the sun and the moon and the earth are in the orbit that God put them in. It happens. It's documented. I'm not saying that God didn't say there would be signs in the sun and the moon, but Jesus said there are things that have to happen before the end. There are websites that are focused 
and have been since the beginning of the Internet on all the things that are happening in the world and how they fulfill prophecy to show that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back right now. I believe he's coming back. I believe he's coming back soon. The point here is Jesus is framing his answer about the stuff that has to happen in the context of this stuff is going to happen and be the sign of the end of the age. Not in the context of when are these things going to come to pass. And yet, every time we talk about these things, instead of associating them with these are the things that Jesus said would mark the end of the age, we focus on this is when Jesus is coming back. We hit so close to the target, but we miss entirely. Why? Jesus said this is the onset of labor. Ladies who have born children, the onset of labor. That's when things hurt the worst. Because you don't expect it. All of a sudden, those little cramps that you got, and I say little cramps, look, I'm a guy, I'm not going to pretend to understand. Those little cramps that you got during the process while you were carrying the kid and your, your, your body was preparing you, right? That was like the trailer that they announce at the very beginning of the cycle before the movie comes out, right? You know all the good scenes, okay? And then all of a sudden, when that first onset contraction hits, that is the equivalent of that THX movie that comes on in the theater. Jesus says all of this stuff, that's the onset of labor. Wrap your head around that. If that's the onset... What is labor going to look like? Because as labor progresses, it happens more frequently and on a grander scale. Keep reading. Jesus says, then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Why does the church act surprised when we get persecuted? Why do we act shocked when what Jesus said is going to happen starts to happen? Now, James, brother of John, was executed by Herod. Stephen was executed by the crowd, by the Sanhedrin. Peter, the rest of the disciples except John were all murdered for their faith. Why? Because they identified with Christ. That's it. That's all. That's all it took. Because of their being in Christ, they were hated and persecuted. I got a newsflash for you. The church has always been hated 
by the nations. Even the nations that are friendly to the faith, like the United States. The church has always been hated. Why? Because my allegiance is not to the United States. Now, as a citizen, I have said the Pledge of Allegiance my fair share of times, more times than I care to to even try to count. As a veteran, I swore an oath. I just counted it five times. Five times I swore an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. I am a patriot. I will defend this country. I believe that is a right as a citizen, a privilege as a citizen, that I get to do that. But ultimately, my allegiance is not to the United States. My allegiance is to Christ. No government wants a citizen whose allegiance is to somebody else. Nobody. Keep reading. Verse 10, Jesus says, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Division within the church. That never happens. We're all perfectly unified, right? Churches split for some of the stupidest... Now, don't get me wrong. There are good reasons for a church to split. All right? For one, if a church becomes too big, where it is impossible to effectively minister to the members of the church, I think a church ought to separate into different congregations. These mega churches with 10, 15,000 people showing up at a service? Mm. No. Right? If there are doctrinal issues... If all of a sudden the pastor starts going off on some weird doctrinal tangent and part of the congregation follows him and part of the congregation says, "Mm, this ain't the right way, then I think it's crucial for that part of the church to separate. That's, That's a good thing. But if this afternoon at the business meeting I say, you know what, we ought to rip out this gray carpet and replace it with purple. And half of you say, that's a great idea, and the other half say, that's a stupid idea. That's not a good reason to split the church. You know what kind of stuff the church is splitting over today? Purple carpet. We don't split over doctrinal issues very often. We don't split over discipline issues very often. We split over stupidity. And from those splits, here's the worst part. From those splits, you know what happens? Hatred and anger, and unforgiveness, and bitterness, and strife, and weakness. Weakness within the body. Because we can't do what Jesus has called us to do if we're bickering with each other, if we're hating one another, if we're in conflict with one another. Look, I don't necessarily agree with every church on the coast, but if there are things that we do agree on, like the essentials of the gospel, then we can minister together. That's the point of the partnership with empowerment. I don't agree with all of their theology, but I agree with them on the core of what makes a Christian a Christian. And so we can minister together. We can cooperate together. But instead, 
We build our little empires. We build our bitterness. And then we have weakness in the church. And who takes advantage of that weakness? False teachers take advantage of that weakness. False prophets. People come in and they spread more wrong teaching. And as the church is influenced by people teaching the wrong stuff, teaching us the wrong way to behave, the wrong way to act, the wrong way to follow what Scripture says, then the church's influence in society shrinks. Because the church shrinks. And as the influence in society shrinks, it's no longer important for politicians to pass laws that are favorable to a segment of society if that segment of society has gotten smaller and less powerful, right? And so laws get passed that we don't agree with that hurt the nation, that hurt the people, or worse, lawlessness increases. People just quit following the laws altogether. How many of y'all broke the speed limit this morning on the way to church? Run any red lights? Stop signs? Roll through any stop signs? No, not at all. Oops. <laughs> and so society, instead of Christian ethic, Christian morality being the foundation on which the laws and the principles are built, now society decides what's right and wrong. And I guarantee you, society is not going to pick the right. And so Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, that's a great statement, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Will he be saved because he endures or will he endure because he is saved? Well, there's a thinker for you. That's a question for another day. We really haven't even gotten to the, the heart of the question, what is the sign of his return? What are they talking about with his return? What's their context? Because what the disciples are looking for and what we understand are two different things. The last verse... The last verse, remember, everything Jesus has been talking about, everything so far are the, the beginnings of the birth pains. Look at the last verse in this section. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Huh. Next week, we're probably going to be starting somewhere around verse 9, maybe a little bit before that, maybe a little bit after that, and we're going to look a little bit closer at this second question, uh, particularly the first part about Jesus' return and what the disciples were talking about and what we think about because they are two mutually exclusive things. And uh, 
because of that, there's there's a whole other issue that we need to uncover and discuss. So, again, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. This time, I expect everybody to do it. This time, I want you all to read, again, from verse 3 through verse 14 of chapter 24. Only this time, I want you to write down a question that comes to your mind because of what Jesus said. And then when you get here on Sunday... I would like to collect those questions. What? So you know what just happened there? As I announced the first ever low attendance Sunday. (laughs) Okay. All right. You can text me. (laughs) 